Welcome to Continuing the Conversation. I'm Carl Amuzu. And I'm Glenn Collins. Fos Church is a community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. Continuing the Conversation is one of the ways that we are trying to create space for an expanded dialogue and interactions based on the conversations we're having at Fos Church. Throughout the biblical narrative, we see God use the unexpected and unimportant to bring about change in the world. The story of Jesus, his birth, life, death, and resurrection is no different. Our conversation started from the bottom, has been an exploration of the good news according to Matthew. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at snapshots from the book of Matthew that exemplify the good news found in the story of Jesus, and today, we get to step into the last story that will wrap up the gospel. This week, we explore how the stories we carry with us shape the kind of world we can inhabit. Yet, their ability to shape us is not overly determined. Our ability to listen to different stories helps our own story remain malleable, which allows new voices to affect how they are understood and lived out. Walking through the last days of Jesus, we will reveal how Matthew's Jesus reshaped their ancient hope to reveal a better way forward. So before we jump in, we just want to ask the question we do every week of, do we have any thoughts about the sermon or what's been sitting on our mind because of what we discussed this last Sunday? Yeah, um, well, one thing that stood out to me from the message was the metaphor that you used or, or the analogy that you used of Robin Hood. Because um, you talked about like when we understand the idea of revolutionary or we, like the word robber or thief that shows up in, in, in the Bibles that we read, we need to understand it as revolutionary. But then you kind of made that interplay between like revolutionary and Robin Hood. And so we understand robber in the same way that we understand Robin Hood. Robin mm -hmm. Hood. And I, th I thought that was just a great analogy, um, you know, that, that you brought forward to, to kind of help people understand uh, just like the context of what was happening in, in that in that scene. So like even even the fact where Jesus ends up on the cross in between two revolutionaries, um, it's a lot easier to understand it more like, okay, like these people are being crucified for being enemies of Rome, enemies of the state. They're not being crucified uh, because they stole a loaf of bread, which is kind of like the way that you, when you hear the word thief, I think, well, they stole my Walkman, if you remember what that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, it puts us, we're able to, bring it down levels to make it petty theft or just a random nuisance rather than intentional action, which is something I always appreciated about some of the folklore um, from our Western uh, European descendants being able to talk about the way we see ourselves as always the righteous upstart against some tyrannical overlord. No matter what the struggle is, we were able to shape our, our imagination of self to say, oh yes, everyone else who's against me, the um, Whatever agendas you think are driving culture, whatever group that you see on the opposite side of you that you say, they're the shadow government or they're the true power brokers, we always have a way of seeing ourselves as the one fighting the good fight. And the fact that that goes back to the beginning of, of the storytelling, that of course you did wrong to me, then I should put you on the cross. Yeah, no, absolutely. Where it's, it's that idea that like, you know, we are all heroes and villains in the, in the story kind of idea, but we, we tend to want to see ourselves as, as the heroes of the story. And so I love like the, just the duality of the, the, the characters that are involved in this story, like Peter, who cuts off the ear of the, the high priest slave and is kind of chastised, is chastised by Jesus saying like, this is not the way of the kingdom. Um, you know, to, the, to, the, to the, the revolutionaries that are beside Jesus on the cross, kind of like mocking him, but it's mm -hmm. like they're in the same position. Come on now. Like, yeah. And so just like the interplay, that duality that, that is happening where it's like, uh, like in one sense, you would think, okay, well, the heroes are the ones that are going to move the story forward. They're going to offer liberation. But the story actually ends with the, the death of, 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 of Christ. And, and, and we, you know, as Christians, we know resurrection as well. Mm -hmm. But like when it ends with the death of Christ, it's like, wow, that was unexpected, right? Because now the heroes of the stories aren't the ones who are pushing it forward in the ways that we would expect. Well, also something you pointed out, which is always interesting to me, is just think of every movie you've seen with execution. The last words of the one about to die are usually towards the one killing them. So you have the famous scene of um, Mel Gibson's, I, I forget, everyone, Braveheart, to where he's like, freedom! Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, you know, 
give, give me liberty or give me death. We have all these lines, but they're always addressed to power. So it is rather dramatic to have this scene to two revolutionaries who would have raised arms against Rome, and rather than the lines you would expect, the down with Rome or the powers that put me here, they stopped to mock the only person who said the story could end differently. Yeah. So, but it also just goes to show you how deeply ingrained the narratives that we are raised with are in us, right? Like mm -hmm. even to the point of death, we will mock anybody that tries to move against it, right? Like, so even, like they're dying because they've been living out this story that obviously isn't working for them. Like <laughs> you were on a cross, homeboy. It's not working for you. And it's like, what, you want to do something different? Nah, man, you, you weird, homie. Yeah, like, that's, not how the, <laughs> that's not how the world works, you'll hear. And that's exactly. what, um, for myself, what's been resonating in my mind over this was that scene that you said with Jesus' reprimand to Peter, where he says, do you not think I have the power? Do you not think I have 12 legions of angels? Which, if you're thinking about Roman occupancy, um, if I remember right, what, there was one legion stationed with um, Pilate. So saying, I have 12 times the army you could ever think of, but this is not an option for us. I have the power, but I don't have the choice. I, ha I have the ability to call an army, but that's not the way the story can end. And when it's put up between Jesus the Christ and Jesus Barabbas, it really hit me over the week of how much the way we tell the story shapes the Barabbas character. Oh, absolutely. Because for them, Barabbas, the famous um, criminal there, was over an uprising with the other people that would be related to him up on the cross. It's you have the one who rose arms, the one who grabbed violence to try to seize power. And they had a necessary ending that Peter thought it went that way. The people on the cross thought it went that way. Even when he critiqued the temple and said, you've turned it into a den of revolutionaries and you guys anoint and bless revolutionaries, um, thought it went that way. And he said, no, that's, that's the only option. The only option we can't do is the only option your story has. Yeah, and it, it's interesting to me that like, you know, that, that interplay between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Christ is it's like, okay, Jesus the Christ died on the cross and now in kind of contemporary conservative Christianity, they're waiting for Jesus Barabbas to return, right? Cause like, yeah. that's kind of the picture that they had. It's like, say, like, hey, don't worry, uh, love your enemies now, but wink, wink, I'm gonna kill them when I get back, right? And that's kind of like, we're waiting for the revolutionary Jesus to show up and take over, like the, for power to, like, it's like, well, yes, I died in weakness, but wink, wink, it's all really about the power of the sword at the end of the day. And that's the part that really captures my imagination in the mix mm -hmm. of this, is just how we have gotten the story so wrong. Well, it, it critique, it, it hits me for the sake of, I agree with you, we've gotten the story so wrong, especially with these notions of, um, I can just say from within the North American context, to where we expect Jesus of power, Jesus to come with usually political power. And if we can only get our political power to run all things, then the kingdom could be here. Um, but actually what my necessary Barabbas is, because I don't think I'm any different in the sense that choosing between the Christ and Barabbas, which, which Jesus I sit around, that the way I tell story actually has a necessary counterpart to which Jesus I choose. And that's where I've been trying to think like, um, what parts do I tell that feed into, maybe it looked a little different, but it's still that right of power. It's still that, that play that we have our famous rebel that I say, that, that's my rebel. I'm not sure what to do with the guy who'll sit with both sides. Yeah, but, absolutely. And usually that's where we put it in. It's like, oh, you have to choose a side. You have to make a distinction because if you don't, then you're against us. And it's, it's always put into that false dichotomy that you have two choices, with us or against us, it's, it's a war or death. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of the show. I was just watching it the other day. I think it's like, I think it's called Nightfall. It was like season two. And mm. um, yeah, yeah. There, was, there was this one scene where they were talking about like being soldiers, they were talking about being soldiers of God. So it's about the Knight mm -hmm. Templars. And this one guy's like, well, we'll call it, man. Hey, you can keep your prayers and allow those to keep you safe. I'm gonna keep my sword. I'm gonna allow that to keep me safe. And it's just interesting that like, you know, like one was, it was it was mocking the person that said, you know what, like my reason for being here has nothing to do with the violence. And it's like, well, <laughs> guess what? Violence is what wins. And mm -hmm. and like, it's just like such an overwhelming trait within our society that we think that violence somehow is 
redemptive, right? Like it's that whole mythology of redemptive violence that comes forth. And that's why Jesus Barabbas makes so much more sense to us, I think. But to even take it one step farther than that is we, we say that we're hopeful, we have faith and we dream, but then at the end of the day, we're ultimately practical. It's like it's best to sit at the table and have more space for more people but it's ultimately practical to control the conversation because what if you say something I disagree with? It's best to have everyone's humanity celebrated. But it's ultimately practical because, um, as we saw with an institution we know, to where they canceled speakers because their champion couldn't show up, and so you only had the other side's voice. And they said, well, it'd be best to have everyone represented, but it's only practical if the people we want to introduce have more stage presence. And yeah. so we always default to this practicality that lends itself to coercion because it takes less time. And like you said, it makes more sense because if you won't listen the second or third time, I guess I just have to drag you into it. No, definitely. That's good, man. So with that, man, um, let's jump into the formational learning questions, man. Do you want to break those down for us? Yeah, the formational learning questions are three levels of question asking the head, heart, and hands, to where the head, it wrestles with a um, mental construct. It's just some of the systems that we have in place for um, the way we say the world works. And in wrestling with those, we can come to new ideas and new endings. The heart asks us to sit into a reflective question that says, how does this integrate within my life? How do I respond to it? And then opens into a hands question, which again is always one of the most important. How do I live it out? How do I make it a tangible reality? So it's not just a beautiful utopic vision in our heads, but it's something that we get a little messy in trying to bring into this world. So the head question this week, Jesus challenged the widely believed story that fighting culture, be it Jerusalem or Rome, was inevitable. Jesus, Jesus did this while celebrating the parts of their shared stories that recognize their common humanity. What stories do we need to rethink or stop carrying with us in order to free us to follow Jesus's way forward? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think for, for, for myself, man, just one of the, the, the hardest things that, that I know I need, I need to rethink it and I need to stop carrying it is centered around the way that I see myself within society as 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 a, as a black man, you know what I mean? Because it's 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 always reactionary um, versus proactive, right? Uh, so it's always thinking about well, and, and I think you know part of it is is about survival, right? Like um, these are things, unfortunately, that, that I have to think about or I feel I have to think about, um, and and I think that's been one of the hardest things for me to to feel free to actually follow Jesus because, like, I can follow Jesus in most spaces, but there's a, there's some spaces where it's like, oh, that's, I don't know what to do in that space because I don't know how to enter into it as, as, as a black man kind of thing. You know, you know what I mean? Um, like that kind of, that, those kind of thoughts. And, and on the other side of it is, you know, growing up with, in, you know, growing up in the shadow of Martin Luther King Jr. and like the uh, civil rights movement stuff. Um, so, you know, look, growing up in the shadow of that and hearing the narrative around it, but then honestly watching it and looking at the results and seeing that like there's kind of this utter powerlessness uh, or uh, yeah, utter, utter, utter powerlessness, but also inability to actually affect change because like a lot of the things like there's, there's, there's some positive changes that have happened, absolutely. Um, but even Martin Luther King towards the end of his life and the part that, that, is, that is ignored by pop culture was like, man, um, these things actually aren't working. We actually have to address the socioeconomic and all these other things that are happening as well. Um, but then I compare that to the response of, say, Mar uh, Malcolm X or the Black Panthers. Um, you know, and they're just in my imagination right now because I've just been reading a lot of history stuff in Black. I've been reading mm -hmm. some stuff on the Black Panthers, and so it's right in my imagination. And it was like the 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 civil rights movement worked because it's like they could point out and say, because you don't want those guys. Right, <laughs> um, but then there's this realization that it's actually not working, and and, and it was it's not working, and so you end up with this revolutionary flair, and just just in all honesty, like growing up, I've just been attracted to that revolutionary flair that comes out of black like like that black consciousness and saying, okay, like mm -hmm. what does it actually look like for us to um, 
to elevate ourselves and to find our own identity and to kind of just say, forget your systems. But in doing so, it's one of those things, like, like how do you actually enact that without violently you know, overthrowing or, or at least causing the system to kind of move into anarchy? You know what I mean? And that's, that, those mm-hmm. have been, I don't know if that makes full sense in, in, in light of the question. Well, actually, I'm, I'm curious just because um, what I'm hearing in that is like, yes, um, Jesus, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Mandela, all these prolific voices who said there's a better way generally did not survive the people who they called to a better way. True. Um, state execution is a popular trait of power. Um, and most stories don't end like Mandela's to where it cost him years in jail. But then when he came out, they said, wait a minute, we can hear your better way. And maybe there's hope for South Africa because your way could have healing. Most of it ends like Martin Luther King Jr. to where you get shot because someone says, yeah, that's, that's not cool, homie. Um, so it, we, in that sense, I could very much hear why um, Malcolm X is more, or the Black Panthers more militant movement would be inviting. But it sounds like also that there's this subtext there that says, if you don't value my life, I'll create a system that does in spite of you. Because the in spite of allows the distance so that you stand less chance of being killed by the system you'd hope to change. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Just side note real fast on, on Mandela. Because you, well, you mentioned Mandela. Mandela went to prison as a revolutionary, mm-hmm. as somebody who was militant. Mm-hmm. And he came out of prison um, proposing peace. Mm-hmm. And so it was actually like a, a massive transformation where like Mandela is like the rare one that like you had a little bit of Malcolm X and a little bit of Martin Luther King Jr. in the same guy. Um, so just side note, because I think it, it's, it's an interesting part of his story. Yeah. And, it, and, and we want to honor that transformation, right? It's not like mm-hmm. they, they put him in prison for being peaceful. They put him in prison for being a revolutionary against a corrupt, absolutely corrupt and barbaric system of, 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 of apartheid. Um, but when he came out, he was actually able to bring healing to a country, not because he picked up a gun, but because he was able to offer a way forward that, that allowed people who were, were, were locked in this, in this struggle to actually be able to find spaces of forgiveness and and solidarity, right? In the question, as you said, like the common humanity part. Yeah. So I think like Mandela was like that perfect example of that like messianic way forward that offered hope not not just to not just to to the the oppressed, but also to the oppressor. No, that that is a beautiful aside. And just in case anyone who is listening is from our community or you just want to reach out, we have this beautiful thing called the Phyllis Tickle Rummage Sale. Phyllis Tickle Rummage Sale. No, she tickles rummage sales. <laughs> I don't care if it's her last name. But one of the books there is the biography of Nelson Mandela. And one of the great ways to try to reshape your imagination is not just through um, philosophy or different ab- abstractions that we can try to construct something different in our mind, but reading about the lives of people who effectively went through the process of change, because he's right. And plus, you get to hear the funny jokes uh, Mandela makes about saying he knew who was doing the food strikes well, because the ones who give up in prison go to bathrooms still. And it's just great to hear revolutionaries say, like, I know you didn't stay with our movement. You used the bathroom today. <laughs> like, that is a very um, incarnate human way to understand movements. So, yeah, yeah, there's pun intended. Um, I'd say for myself, one of the stories that I've had to let go of, of um, Jesus, the ones I can't carry with me, is, is this notion of the ultimate practicality, because in it, it was always, sure, these things are good, they're altruist, altruistic, they're ideal, but, but they're not something we can live out of, because we have to live out of the belief of the lower nature of humanity. And so I'd hold this notion that, like, sure, someday in the sweet by and by, maybe we'd have a society that we could turn swords into plowshares, and that we could be concerned with cultivating life around us rather than preparing for the war that will protect me and mine. But in this choice between Barabbas and Jesus, that's the story I think that I would say I, but also I think we from the traditions I come from, have to let go. It's, it's not good enough for us to say, don't worry, it'll get fixed someday in the end. Um, like Mandela, who never did it perfectly, 
but he was very faithful to the place he was at. We have to try to risk, to gamble, to hope that we can affect change around us. No, absolutely. And there's like a saying that you always say, and, I, and I'm not sure if, if it's your paraphrasing of somebody mm -hmm. else or if it's something that you, you took from somebody else, but like the story that got you to where you are isn't necessarily the story that will take you where you need to go. And like Mandela, mm -hmm. against going back to that, is a, a perfect yeah. example of that. And it's like, you know, it's interesting to me because I would flip that on his head a little bit and say like for, for, for Christians, for followers of Jesus, um, we just have, we actually have to trust that the Jesus that got us as far as the Jesus is going to get us to the end of it as well. Like, mm -hmm. so, so it's, it's, it's a little bit of a contrast in the, in the, in the mix of that, because I think we, we pick it up and we say, as you know, going back to what I was saying before about the Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, the Christ, it's like Jesus, the Christ. Okay, cool. He saved my soul. Thank God. Um, Jesus Barabbas though is going to, is going to bring us into the new age or something like that. You know, we kind of have this, mm -hmm. like, we kind of have this like swapping of stories. And I, but I, I guess like my, my thought in that is wanting to make sure that like the story that projects us into the future, like it's always something that is, 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 a, is about potential in a sense, because it has the potential to actually put you in a good place, but also has the potential to put you in a negative spot, mm -hmm. depending on what story you allow to take you into the future, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. And it, um, to the second part of the first head questions and leaning into one of our favorite scholars, John Caputo says that we must learn to own our tradition so that it no longer owns us. What parts of our traditions can we celebrate? And I think what Carl's pointing to there, um, not everybody's story of Jesus. Some people started in place of, of the God who so loved humanity had to join the world and would say, because you can't reach me, I'll reach you. Although I'd say that in the stories I always heard, the notion of Jesus was very much um, join me or else. And so it was a kind of a coercive effect. Um, and those parts I think we need to let go, but the part we can celebrate about our tradition, at least for myself, in an all our muddled and muddied storytelling, it holds a central beauty that if we let it critique everything else we do could actually be life-giving, of humanity is so valuable, so precious, so beautiful, that even the one who created all things couldn't stand to be separated. And that's the whole story of Jesus as the Christ coming into the world was saying, because you couldn't get to me, I'll move in with you. No, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I love that whole that whole idea, the condescension of, of God, right? Like like as the Well, since most people hear condescension negatively, how would you describe it elsewise? Condescension means lowering oneself too. And um, we hear it negatively because of our, you know, fragile egos. And so to say that God condescends to us, um, we're like, no, he doesn't because we think we're awesome. But just reality is God condescends to us. And so the condescension of God into the person of Christ, um, whether you take it negatively or not, check your ego. You know, you might be narcissistic. Yeah, check yourself before you wreck yourself. I got you. Yeah. Bad use of language is bad for your health. Check yourself before you wreck yourself because bad theology is bad for your health. <laughs> uh, Thank you, Ice Cube. <laughs> Patron saint of folks, I got you. Um, we have like 50. <laughs> hey, we like a lot of people. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that notion. And yeah, we do have to hold it in tension because um, we don't want it to be so ego driven to say whatever we do, whenever we do it is always beautiful, kind, gracious, benevolent. Because we need that point to be able to experience the disconnect that usually in our minds, the things we have to let go of, is what we construct as Jesus Barabbas. The necessary ending of our story, whether that means our enemies get punished, or that means I can kick out who I want to kick out. However, the, or even if it's internalized shame, I know some people, the necessary Jesus, the Jesus Barabbas, is less a social reality and very much a if anybody, even God, knew who I was, he would hate me too. And so in these moments, yeah, we, we got to be able to let go of these, um, or at least be able to face that to see that there are broken systems around us, while also celebrating that the broken systems are around us, but the beauty of life is what wins out. No, absolutely. And that, that's the beauty of 
of, of resurrection mm -hmm. is that all these systems of, of death and, and brokenness and corruption, all these different things around us, like do your worst, um, but life will always win out, right? And, and that's the beauty of resurrection. So yeah, I love that. Um, I'm sorry, the only thing I can think of when you're saying that is that's a line from the Count of Monte Cristo after Edmond Dantes, who's the one who lost everything, so he becomes the Count in the middle of a dinner party, and they ask him to speak, and he says, I've come to realize in life that we look at the storms and say, do your worst, because I'll be standing at the end. That's awesome. It's so much better than what I had in my head. I was literally singing Elton John's Circle of Life. Huh. <laughs> Yours is much more profound. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, but I would say though, like, like the part of the tradition for me that 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 I that I, I want to hold on to and I want to celebrate, um, like I grew up I grew up Pentecostal, mm -hmm. um, and like there's a, there's a, a, a the belief that that God is is present in such a way that it affects our current reality. Mm -hmm. I think like that's something for me that. To be honest, like my, my, my cynicism at times has tried to rob me of that part of, of my faith. But going forward, I want to celebrate that part of my faith is that there's just something about the idea that we, we, we just believe that God's presence actually changes the reality around us. And it's not like a, a hoped for presence as in like I hope God shows up one day, but that we actually believe God is like tangibly, physically present with us in, in a way that shapes our reality. And so I can't really, I don't really necessarily have a picture of, oh, this is what it should look like, but I know that I wanna hold on and celebrate that part of my tradition because I think that's the beautiful part. Like that's like incarnation. That's mm -hmm. the part that says, no matter what's happening around us, I actually have faith to take another step. I have faith to go forward because I do actually believe that God is with me in such a way that my reality is being shaped by that. And I like that view of it because when we own our tradition rather than being owned by it, it's kind of the difference when you see a 16-year-old kid who's embarrassed by their family. They're owned by their family at that point because anything the family does causes them to hide in shame, to run away because who could ever be in, as embarrassing as my dad wearing socks with sandals and cargo shorts that are camo. So it, it affects you in a way that you can't celebrate that which is around you. But to own your tradition or to even accept your place within the family allows you to be able to not experience shame over things that could be embarrassing. It's like, yeah, we can own there, There's been some crazy parts of our shared tradition of Pentecostalism that has reached too far, um, claimed too much, almost like you had a, a definitive control of the divine. But to be able to own your tradition, we can acknowledge that maybe it stepped too far, but there's still beauty to that promise and something to be realized. So we can look back, see it, and say, yeah, that there's been mistakes made. Even the way we've understood it, there's been mistakes made. But that doesn't mean that we lose the distinctive quality of what's there. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 it, and it's interesting because often I think the things that we think step too far um, are things that we, we are responding to or reacting to mm -hmm. that hit us in a, in a way. It's not even a, it's not like an intellectual thing. It's just some sort of visceral response. Like we just, yeah. like it, it, it triggers something negative for us. So we respond in a, in a, in a way where we push it and reject against it. Um, but it, but it, it's interesting, like that, that, that language that you use of the things that do go, that have gone too far. And, 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 I, and, I, re, and, and I absolutely realize and acknowledge that there are definitely things within our mm -hmm. tradition that we grew up in um, that, that, that go too far. Um, but I don't know if we can actually name them well because we're caught up in the middle of it as subjective beings, you know, you know what I mean? Like, so mm -hmm. the things that went too far for me um, are solely because they hit me in a certain way. And like, like we would probably, like if we were to say like, what's the one thing that went too far for you? We'd probably name different things right now. You know what I mean? So like as an experiment, what's the one thing, what's one thing that went too far for you? Huh, my mind was tracking a completely different place, but one thing that went too far for me was the coercive nature of faith, that there was no such thing as a relationship. There was only long con um, cells, because once you can get them into the church, once they said their prayer, you almost lost touch with them. It was always about um, what they would call friendship evangelism. But if the person wouldn't convert, they're also forbidden to you because now they could corrupt you. So it put you into this very isolated um, used car salesman notion of, you're always about trying to get something out of somebody. 
No, absolutely. Now, flip it on its head. What's something that you can celebrate about that, though, from your tradition? Because I've experienced that, it's helped keep my counselor paying his rent because therapy is his job. See, I, I, I would agree with you, but I would also add, though, that like what I hear when you say that, though, is that there's something worth inviting people into, even if they do it wrong. Right, that, that, that you grew up in a tradition that believed that w there's something worth inviting other people towards, um, well, even, would, even, even if they do it wrong. I would actually push on that for the sake of, um, I do believe that, but in that part of it, I think that's a part of my tradition that needs to be lit on fire. Now maybe I could say, um, if you take it to an abstraction, like there is something beautiful to be invited into, or maybe even, um, the beauty of some, because not everyone did that with the ideas of manipulation. Some thought it was the only um, way to get people in. So there was, a, there was a true passion to it, but a true passion that I believe lacked wisdom. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And so, I agree with you sure, on that. I, I, could, I could go there, but for the most part, I saw so much damage with it. And um, shell games of relationships that I'd say I would throw away 99% of it in light of, um, I don't think it allowed us to sit in the stories and humanity of each other. Well, absolutely, I would agree with you on that for sure. Like just from hearing the story, that's yeah. not the part that I'm actually tapping on. It's the thing behind the thing, you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, get rid of that, what you're actually describing, but the thing behind the thing is the reason why people even do that thing is the, the, the thing that there's something worth inviting to, right? Like, like that's how, I, how, how I'm hearing it. I could be wrong, I'm just interpreting oh, no, no, that's, what I'm hearing, right? So. Yeah, no, no that, um, that is, I just, um, like you said, uh, most of the time when we talk about reasons, and this is something that I, I loved about um, behavioral economics branch of psychology, is they'd found in decision making, we have a visceral response, we have a gut reaction that we rationalize later. And so we think we started from the rationalizing, the thinking, the logic, and then we moved to a response. No, absolutely. Um, and in this, I think part of it is yeah, I still have a visceral response to this sort of thing. It, it's a gut check that um, makes me want to let go of the idea that we all sit at the table and be like, you can sit on the dunking chair and I'm going to throw softballs at you and pretend I'm aiming for the switch that dunked you in the water and be like, oops, sorry, my bad. Dude, when you said um, that, that, that idea of we all sit at the table, sorry. Huh? Uh, um, you remember that video that was on YouTube a couple years back where the kid freaks out in the middle of Thanksgiving and like flips the table over and has all the Thanksgiving stuff all over it? That's, I, I'm picturing you doing that right now. It's like, yeah, okay, we're all at the same table, but the table, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, you yeah I don't see the problem there. That, that's, <laughs> yes, that fits my um, visceral response in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome man um yeah all right man well we'll call any any, any other thoughts on that question at all uh, no i'd say this sets up this kind of uh, reactionary nature actually uh transitions well into the heart question which is have you experienced a moment like peter where you sacrificed so much only to discover that you were chasing barabbas and not christ how did you respond to this discovery? I'm gonna let you jump on that first. <clears throat> well, sometimes I did respond in the story that uh, Carl just said about the YouTube video to where um, you flip the table and then you look around the table and wonder like, why are all you guys upset with me? I just flipped the table and you're supposed to be nice to me after that. Sometimes it was that response, but I'd say in, for me, in, in these moments to where like Peter and just in case it's not fresh in your mind, the part of Peter we're talking about is in the garden to where he pulls the sword, chops off the ear, but then he has to watch his hope, his Messiah, get killed by Rome, the one that they're supposed to kick out. That it, it was in this moment he discovered he thought he was fighting for the Messiah, but the only thing he had in his mind was Barabbas the revolutionary. For me, I know that within my faith tradition, I understood myself as having to pick aside dichotomies until my late 20s. Now, who I thought was in, who I thought were my people may have changed, but it was always this very absolute, um, you were with us or against us, you're on my side or 
or I'm fighting you, that there was this very rigid um, solidarity on one side, but an absolute otherness um, for anyone who wouldn't. And when I say agree, I don't even mean agree. This came into um, interfaith competitions because my small town I was raised in, we didn't have many other faiths. We had about five to six different versions of Christianity. And so we had a lot of infighting with ourselves about who was the true Christian, who would be the right, the most right, and everyone else was an affront to Christ himself. And I dedicated a lot of my time to that. And as I went into um, academics, I thought what would happen when I went to school, like for Bible college and university, I would learn all the holes that I had, like this, this false dichotomy, this battle didn't work. I didn't understand everything. So if I got more information, then I could, I could patch the holes in my understanding. I knew my reality was correct, but the substructure just needed a little bit of help. And then the more I learned, the more I found out everything I'm dedicating myself to, well, I just need to move the circle. So my structure was still good. I just had the wrong in-group. So I stayed in that fight of the small town, the um, fight between the Foursquare, the Nazarene, the Assembly of God, the Methodist, the Baptist, to where all of us would say Jesus is king, and this means that we have to enter in a graceful space to the world, but then would say, you're all going to hell because you are not our flavor, our brand. Um, and then in my late 20s, when I went to seminary for the first time, I sat in the middle to where I, for once, was the token. I was in a place to where being a cisgendered white male from a conservative background meant that my voice wasn't reflected in everyone. I had to do something weird for me. I had to wrestle with the tension of everything I had invested, friendships I had lost, money I had sacrificed, years of pushing myself in one direction, met with this pain of hearing the voice of Jesus in mouths that I wouldn't have recognized. They wouldn't have been part of my tribe, my group, my brand. And suddenly it kind of just broke me because if I couldn't so easily mark and define, then that meant that I suddenly had to have a new structure that it wasn't a matter of me just patching together the substructure that I thought was needed a little bit of help, but basically right and realized that I had to have a new way of not only sitting within community, but understanding how my space affects the community and how the community should affect me. So for that part of um, how did I respond to this discovery, at first it was a bit um, dystopic, uh, it's this idea that, well, if, if it's all about the experience, then who cares? Um, there's no reality that matters. But then became it, um, kind of a little bit of what uh, Derrida has said about reading. He said, true, we can never get the final word, the final answer, but it's too important of a question for us not to give our answer. So it's pushed me into that direction to where the collapsing of my faith, that experiencing God as projectile, as iconoclast in, in the mouths of other people who are reflections of divinity, I had to wrestle with the notion that it's not about creating perfect tribes, is about actually breaking those categories that would separate us in the first place. Sounds mm. good, man. Um, so question for you. Like in the notion of like breaking down the idea of tribes and, and, and differences, um, how do you kind of move into that without kind of creating monot like, like a monotonous or monolithic culture out of, out of it, right? Like so kind of hearing it as like, you know, obviously like you're using difference as synonymous with sameness, but they're actually different, right? In, mm -hmm. that, in that sense, so how, how would you actually break that down where you can hold on and celebrate the beauty of the difference, but remove the monot like re remove the, the movement towards sameness? Because I, I would understand you to be saying that, mm -hmm. but I would love for you to explain a little bit more about I know, that. I, I get you because, um, well, even the way we started this conversation to where uh, you talked about the experience of your blackness and what that means in your understanding. Only black people can say that, bro. That's why I didn't say the experience of my blackness, because I am as vanilla as they come. But you, you said the experience of your blackness in this predominantly white culture to where it gives you a different experience of power structures, um, 
people have whole different suspicions or projections onto you, and that's affected the way you could understand Christ and being in culture. That this notion of breaking down the um, categories that we create our tribes by does not throw away the the particularity by how we've understood our stories. So in, in the way I would understand this is the tribe is defined by who could be the right speaker, the good speaker, who could know something. So when I ask you something, when I say, can you explain to me something? If I'm trying to go with a tribalism, I have things in the back of my mind that I'm waiting for you to say it's a setup. Questions are defensive weapons. Do you believe in this is not really a question about how do you wrestle with this, with this concept? It's usually, are you a good Christian? Are you the right kind of human? Where do you land on race, gender, sexuality, politics? Who did you vote for? Is a trap and I got you moment. When we're letting go of those things that create those tribes, it's more a declaration that I can say, these things do not define the correct speaker. And I will have faith in your ability to not only know you and your story, but to speak a truth to this world to say, my experience of these systems, these powers and the brokenness actually represent something real in these systems and powers and brokenness, not just a, um, an elusive of, oh, well, that's just my truth that we like to hear when we don't want to get into a hard conversation. Mm-hmm. It actually brings about, it's like, oh, were you comfortable in this story? Here's how it's oppressed me. Sure. Was, is this the narrative you tell? Do you want Barabbas? Do you want power? Do you think, um, like in the States, we would like to talk about trickle-down economics. Like, do you think the rich are always going to be the ones to look after everybody? Alternative facts. <laughs> exactly. I was like, well, what do we do with the system that COVID-19 has, has shown that everybody is so close to being impoverished, homeless, and in desperate situations that either we have to say that nobody ever looks after their own with wisdom, or we have a system that somewhere at the base of it needs a certain amount of people not to be able to survive the system. And these are the moments that I think we don't let go of our particularity where you can say, I come from these struggles and, and this position socially. But what we let go of is the right to define by particularities who can see into the system. No, I, I, I like that. Um, a question that kind of pops up for me in, in the mix of what you're saying there, though, is like when you start talking about um, economics, and I, I, I'm trying not to use trigger words for people, but when you start talking <laughs> about economics and we realize that there's disparity in the, like, like there's such a disparity in the economics mm-hmm. that, as you said, the majority of people are on the brink of being completely broke, actually. Um, and COVID, like the COVID-19 scenario, the whole, the whole stuff that's kind of happened around it, it just exposed that. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, so we're off work for two months and people are in crisis economically. So as you said, either the majority of the country is just completely unwise in the way that it handles its finances, or there's a system that isn't equitable and isn't sustainable for the average person. So how do you fall like, like, like in this, like, like for my, my response to that would be like, okay, well, we need to shut it down. We need to smash the system. We, you know what I mean? Almost viva la, revo- la, la, viva la revolution, right? <laughs> that, that's what comes to mind when mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say that. So how would you say, okay, well, it's not about revolution and it's not about Rome. Mm-hmm. So what's the way forward? How do you dismantle, disrupt, and take apart these inequitable, and I would say demonic systems, if you don't just smash the crap out of it? Well, I think that part of it is the point. It is about revolution, but it's not about violent revolution. It, it is about change. It is about breaking the system, but it's not about violent um, revolution. It's about putting my people in power and saying, this will work if I control. But it is about change, which is all the root of all revolution, that we have to be able to trust and to recognize that the people who are saying that the machinery of this system has destroyed me and mine. Like a story I just, just heard recently where a teenager um, was say, um, answered a question on a forum, when were you radicalized towards American healthcare? And he said, last year, when my father committed suicide, and in his note, he said, I am unwilling to send us to bankruptcy in order to get the medical treatments I need to extend my life four years. 
that that was the choice in that gentleman's head. I could ruin the future hope of my family or I could take an honorable death to make sure that, every, that they were protected because I will not send my children into poverty if I don't have to. And now most of us will miss the point of the story and say, well, what about the sanctity of life? He must not have cared and that nonsense. And we like those stories because it allows us to either get outraged and in our outrage not deal with anything or it allows us to not talk about the point by talking about the surrounding effect of, well, he, you know, if he was a true believer, if he really had hope and blah, 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 he never would have done such a thing. Don't you know you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps? And that kind of nonsense social rhetoric. But the true conversation we need is how do we have a system that enables people to get the actual need they have? Because we are not in the 1700s anymore. So I don't care what my forefathers would have done when they fought England to get America because we have science now. Not only do I have science, we have a developed country that has the hope of giving medical attention to all the people in need. And that means that we have to change the conversation. We have to be disruptive to the system, but not in a way that causes us to violate every other person for our group. It's not about changing who the end circle is. It's about creating avenues that that child's story actually gets play and it's not just used to polarize. It's about letting other narratives come true and not just dismissing them. Because psychology has pointed many times that with confirmation bias, that we have the innate ability as humans to completely ignore and what they found in some studies to rewrite stories we hear so that they become subordinate to the one we already believe. That's where the revolution comes, to where we can create systems of disruption for these stories that allow us to ask the real questions of what does it look like now, which is why I read some um, economists, is like, what could it look like to have an economic system that creates the most room for the majority of the people to experience a sustainable living when it comes to the church, when it comes to us saying, what does it look like to be the church in this world? I think one, if we're going to be in line with the Christ and not Barabbas the violent revolutionary, Christ did not hide from Rome. That's why he got crucified. Christ didn't hide from his tradition. He stood between both and said, the way of war that you want doesn't work which is why he was killed. We've seen that repeatedly, which is why I think we give ourselves a pass and we pull back from standing between the two powers saying, my tradition, my institution, the religious structure, and the political powers who are apathetic towards our cause, but would just rather the majority not be upset, eliminates us. Um, that we, we have to take that point with Christ to stand between without sword and say the system can't keep going this way. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, I just want to say that, one, that's a very, 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 like, American perspective of what you're saying. I'm very, very American. Yes, because, like, I would say that, like, in Canada, right, um, there, are, there are things that are happening, um, but that would be, I'm here, I'm listening to what you're saying, I'm like, I can relate to it because I see it on the news, but there's a lot of that where it's like, that feels a little bit foreign to me, just in all honesty. Let me finish what I'm saying, though. But So I just want to point out that they want to, it is an American perspective, mm -hmm. and that's okay because we need that perspective. And there, but, but at the same time, like, the beauty of being able to, to name your particularity is that we can look outside of our particularity, and there's, maybe there's places that are doing it different and better or, you know, or whatever, right? So mm -hmm. it, it allows us ways forward. Um, my, the actual question that I wanted to, or, like, thought that I actually had in light of what you were saying is – I, w I would push back on on that as the as the state the, the stated idea of the need for re uh, resurrection. I mean, the stated need for revolution. Um, and the reason I would push back on that is that revolution always demands another, like an, like an other something that we're going to like revolt against in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. And and so I would say that Jesus. Um, you know, a lot of people, like, you know, growing up, people like, oh, Jesus was a revolutionary. And I, 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 I dug that because <laughs> I, I, I was like, man, I want to be revolutionary. And I, and I really related to revolutionary thinking. Yeah. Um, 
But the more that I've kind of reflected on it and thought about it would be like, and, and again, like this is going to throw out semantical language. So, but like, it's like, we don't need revolution. We need resurrection, right? Because Jesus actually going to the cross um, was allowing the machine in a sense to play itself out. And the machine breaks down when it, when it plays itself out, you know, you, you know, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so Jesus, his language and what he taught was disruptive, but what his language and what he taught pointed us towards was the, was, was the actual reality of resurrection or maybe to, to bring it from like, you know, Christianese high language. It was about restoration, not revolution. It was being restored to our true humanity versus revolting against other people who just don't see it the way we do or systems that seem to come against us or so on and so on. Right. You're right. That is semantical, <laughs> but, um, no, that, that's true, and this is the trouble with language, is I would still hold to revolution because um, it animates action, but that what you're pointing out is very true, is my intention of naming revolution is not one to create a needed other, um, is not that I'm the good guy and that person over there is the bad guy. It's not that the kingdom would be here if I could just get rid of you or a certain system. So absolutely, we need restoration. We need to call back to true humanity. We need the effect of resurrection in these systems. Um, so in those, because of the ability for revolution to be um, taken hostage to anybody's pet whim to say, well, no, I'm just being a revolutionary. That's, that's why I think um, revolution in light of Jesus, like. Rather than saying Jesus was a revolutionary, we need to base revolution on Jesus, um, creates a different grounding for me. Because if the revolution comes where you stand up for a shared humanity and say, the reason why I was killed is that I would not make an other of anybody. Because just shortly before all this, when he comes in, because he does do revolutionary acts or within the Jewish tradition, prophetic acts, flipping the table, saying that you guys have become bloodthirsty. Um, calling the 12 uh, apostles, which would be a symbol of the restoration of, of the nation of Israel. Like he, he did a lot of things that would be heard from the revolutionary stories, but the where it got flipped, well, he said, this revolution cannot come at the cost of anybody's life. It cannot come from creating another. It is truly a breaking from within the system to say we together can build a world that is better for all people at the table. Yeah, and we'll call it like, I, I know like most people are gonna roll their eyes at us, you know what I mean, uh, on the mix of this, because like our disagreement in this is so minute that people are like, I don't even know what they're disagreeing about. <laughs> 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 but like, especially when you, when you brought up like the idea within the prophetic tradition, mm -hmm. and I would say that the prophetic tradition um, was about, wasn't about overthrowing, it was actually about, about exposing. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the point of exposing was about return so that you could be restored too. Mm -hmm. And so that revolution is about overthrowing, it's not about exposing, right? So the prophetic acts can lead to revolution, but they could also lead to restoration. And if you can see me, I'm using my hands and I'm pointing really big because they're on opposite sides of the spectrum. <laughs> but like, so cause I, I agree with what you're saying in, in one sense, but I just wouldn't call that revolution. I would say no. That 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 like that's Jesus moving us prophetically towards restoration and saying you have two choices in the road in front of you. Like you can do revolution, you can do power, you can do empire, or you can do restoration. I'm about restoration. Follow me. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, no. That and that's the fun of these games is to be able to say um, we're trying to be the most clear we can, um, and give room for us to be nerds. So with that, absolutely. And in that way, if, if revolution needs to be understood, if it's necessary of revolution to say it's, it's the overthrow of somebody else, then it doesn't allow us to do the most um, iconoclastic, the most changing thing and say that we sit within a system and expose the cracks so that we can change from within the system rather than just saying, because revolution in, in understood that way says that I'll get rid of you so I can start my own thing. And that's why Jesus is inspiring to me is like Jesus stays within his tradition. And honestly, that's what gets him killed. If he would have just gave himself some space 
and not went to Jerusalem to flip the temp flip the temple and yell at people at that time like it would have been cool they'd have been like hey he's crazy he's in Galilee nobody cares but it was the fact that he would not allow separation from the tradition that brought the messianic hope that he was claiming that got him killed by an empire that actually was completely apathetic to him because when Pilate said I wash my hands of this it wasn't that Pilate was good and benevolent and was like, oh no, he just so didn't care. He's like, you have a backwoods guy saying he'll get freedom? There's no army around, we're, we're good. Like, get some swords and we'll talk. But he killed them out of convenience. He's like, you guys are super upset. If I kill him, you're good, right? And, and that's that point that he didn't allow the separation. So if we wanna call that uh, resurrection, restoration, like, those are fine with me, as long as we have that, that inherent call. And for our question of heart, reflecting within our own story, our response to these moments of breaking, the moment that the system we realize, the story that brought us here no longer works, that the ways and the tools of a violent revolutionary are no longer conducive to a kingdom of God here because we can't say we'd have it if you would just leave, needs to bring us to a place that we don't just start our own thing, that we sit between the tradition we received and a world that just doesn't care and say, you guys, there's a better way forward. And we become the community of asking the question, how do we have representation of people saying, here's where the system has missed it and we need the better way forward? Yeah, so, like, and that's one thing I love, I love about what we're trying to create with folks um, is that it's not about saying, okay, we're starting something new. Um, anybody who disagrees with us, you know, get out. Um, it's more about, here's the table. We're all called as guests to this table. This is Jesus's table. And so we know that Jesus has some rules about being at Jesus's table. And as a community, we're going to make sure that those rules make, include people versus push people mm -hmm. away. And, and I love that, that we're trying to create that with folks because like, I love the fact like we're, we're, we're a highly dialogical community. Like we, we speak, we share, um, conversation is kind of the ebb and flow of what we do. Um, but every time when we go to share, it always starts off with like, hey, we love the interaction. We love people, like, like, like listen to people's stories, but remember that the stories can't be, they're not about being against somebody else or about being against something else. And if somebody shares something that you're like, man, I just don't, don't agree with that, ask questions about curiosity. Don't ask questions that are meant to coerce them into trying to find a way that lines up with yours. And I think that, like for me at least, that's the, the, the vulnerability part, but also moving for healthy relationships. Like there are some boundaries that we have. It's like, you, you know what I mean? Like you're not gonna hurt people in our community. You know, you know what I mean? Um, you're not gonna try to coerce somebody into believing something or, or saying that they believe something or stating something solely because you want them to agree with you. Like you actually, like, like, like you must give them space to be themselves at the table. Like, like they, they are, they're allowed to wholly be present at the table mm -hmm. because the table is a holy place. <laughs> but in the mix of that, we're also gonna push people to, 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 be whole, like to be holy themselves at the table because that's the, the most holy thing we can do. Uh. Um, and I'd imagine since Carl's just getting a run in with the fact that he's amusing himself greatly by doing so many holy puns, um, is we don't wanna hear holy in this sense as a heavy moral elitism to where we say we're gonna be holy at the table and so we get really concerned over language, we get really concerned over um, as we've been told before when we showed up to functions like, well, a, truly, a person truly set apart for this stuff would wear a suit and tie. I love suit and ties, but as soon as I was told that that's the only way that I could properly represent a good minister, suddenly I was like, oh man, I guess I'm wearing Chuck Taylors then, huh? It's like, it, it creates those moments. That's not what we mean when we say holy. Holy is in the sense of separated for purpose, and the purpose you're separated for is creating space for the shared humanity. And so when we have rules of the table, the rules are never about doctrine, they're never about what you have to believe. They're not even about uniformity. All the rules that we have around the dialogue about how do we respect each other's humanity, how do we respect each other's autonomy, while keeping avenues open for us to still be a group, 
because none of us understand ourselves purely in and of ourselves. We understand who we are by the conversations and communities we belong to. And if we truly want to do something that can change and respond well to that breaking moment where we invested so much into one way of being but realized that we need a new way for life, as Carl said, a holy way, then we have to position ourselves in the best way possible to stay in community with each other without violating the other person's ability to stay present. And so, yeah, if you're trying to aggressively corner and convert, if you are pulling some of the moves that happened to me as a child where I got cornered because I be, they found out I was diabetic, it's like, what sin did you commit? And I was like, dude, I'm 11. Did I like the wrong X-Men? Because I thought Gambit was cool, but no one else did. So maybe that's what happened. Um, like those things we'll call out because we call out tangible abuse, but not philosophical difference. So just in case the hands question wasn't actually asked, we're not quite sure if it was or wasn't. Um, Jesus never left his tradition. He stayed connected in, in vulnerability to show a better ending. How can we stay connected while honoring the call to vulnerability and our need for healthy relationships slash systems? That's the hands questions. That's what we were just answering. And so if there was any confusion, I apologize. Any other thoughts on that question, bro? My only thoughts around the hands question is this, um, wherever you're at in your journey with this, this is gonna be the place that takes the most wisdom and action. Because in order to show up with vulnerability, you also have to know yourself a little bit to know your limits. In order to maintain healthy relationships and systems that are, that are imperfect, we have to be able to have the benefit of the doubt that the people involved in imperfect systems still have hope and an honest pursuit of our best interests as well. So when we offend, when we have conflict, when we have these rubs that say, you're not hearing me, you don't understand me, or you're not making sense at times, especially when it's these religious dialogues, um, it's you're not respecting the sacred. That these aren't things that they're doing maliciously, but it's a part of being able to trust that we're trying to build something together and having that the space to understand our vulnerability, that sometimes naming our vulnerability is naming the fact that we can't be vulnerable this moment. So maybe the conversation has to, to quiet down for a second because we can say, you know, this is, this is actually, I was triggered. Um, something's driving is like I can't respond well right now so that we can still own the space of togetherness oh, absolutely and that's a much healthier expression of saying you know there's just some things I can't enter into in this moment there's some things that got me heated um, and to be able to name that and state that is actually a vulnerable act because um, quite often it looks a lot more like we, we feel flustered, we feel triggered, and when then we just flip the table over like that YouTube video we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. versus saying, okay, you know what, I need to actually get up from the table for a moment because it's gonna be the healthiest thing for all of us, um, but I do wanna come back. And I do wanna find, I, 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 it's not even that I wanna find space here, it's that I know I actually have space here, but I, and I wanna honor that space. So that's actually a super vulnerable thing to do and, and a, probably a very responsible thing to do. Well, and it shows a tremendous amount of trust in the sense that to walk away from something saying, I'll come back, is recognizing that you trust the people at the table to still hold space for you and to give you room to walk. Because you're not leaving the table um, indefinitely. It's just more, I need to breathe. Mm -hmm. And then you get to come back into creating something. Yeah, awesome, man. So we're kind of at that time now where we need to wrap it up. And so I'm just gonna turn it over to you to give us a one minute summary. Not one minute each, one minute. <laughs> A fluid notion of Corona time minute. I got you. So, so I want my Kairos, my <laughs> Kronos. <laughs> wow. Jokes that are only funny if you went to seminary for 500. Um, so for the questions we went through, the head question, which asked us, what stories have we brought with us that we would need to let go in order to step towards Jesus the Messiah rather than Jesus Barabbas. We had found that the stories we try to let go of are the stories of coercion and grasping for power. That as we let go of these stories, it enables us to choose presence and the ability to critique the system while remaining relationally attached to it 
So it doesn't just create a needed other again. We can say that those systems need to break so that we can have a better way of being. As we step into the reflective heart, said, where have we experienced these moments? And how did we respond to the discovery that the Jesus we were chasing looked off an awful lot like Barabbas? The way that we discussed that was actually a notion of shock and allowing space for our loss. That once we realized we gave years and we gave time, money, and passion to a construct that didn't work so much for us, that we had to give us space to be able to sit in that break to enable us to re-enter the conversation in a way that created the room to have more people present. Coming into the hands of how do we make this real, Jesus never left his tradition, but he stayed connected in vulnerability to show a better ending. How can we stay connected while honoring the call to vulnerability? And we discussed a way of being able to name our realities and to trust that the people that we're reacting against at times and with the people that we work to create things and sometimes irritate, that these people have our best interest at heart. And so we try to move the faith, not just in myself, but the faith in the other people at the table, that they are here because they saw a more beautiful way forward, that they see something in Jesus, that they want a world that creates room for all people to have a thriving life, have blood, sweat, and tears into the same struggle that I have so that I can name the moments that I'm triggered, that I can't go forward, that the conversation might be just too much, and they will hold space for me so that I'll be able to come back to the conversation when I have that room. But it's not as simple, a perfect system means we can be vulnerable in a way that exposes everything. It's about the wise showing of yourself and being able to be disarmed by trusting the intentions and beauty of the other person. And in that way, we can come together and try to write a better ending to the story. All right. Thanks, Glenn. Um, so with that, uh, we're going to wrap up. And as always, you can find us at www.fos.church. Um, if you want to connect with us, you would love to just find out more about what we do um, as, as a community. Um, if you want to jump into the conversations, there's so many ways that you can connect with us on the website. And we would just love for you to be part of that. And with that, peace. <laughs>